This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash free books to download this book in PDF format. By This Standard The Authority of God's Law Today by Greg L. Bonson Published by the Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas Copyright 1985 Chapter 20 what the law can and should do. Quote, Within the life of the believer, the law receives its proper due. Indeed, it is established by faith. End quote. Our study of what the law cannot do has found that the law, one, cannot contribute anything to a man's justification, two, cannot relieve the bondage of sin and enable obedience, and three, cannot actually accomplish the full salvation foreshadowed by the ceremonial ritual. A thorough study of the literature of the New Testament will show that its depreciatory or negative remarks about the law of God will each and every one be associated with an oversight of the three mentioned inabilities of the law, failing to see what the law cannot do and was never intended to do. Men have tried to use works of the law for personal justification, have vainly sought to obey the law's precepts without God's gracious empowering, and have continued under the outmoded shadows of the Mosaic ritual after the advent of the Savior. It is to such unlawful uses of the law that the New Testament speaks with firm antipathy. Yet none of the well-known New Testament passages which speak against the abuse of the law go on to release believers from moral obligation to the pattern of righteous living revealed in the law. The standard of the law remains valid, showing us what is good in the sight of God. Paul's evaluation is proven very helpful in resolving the apparent conflict over the status of the law within the pages of the New Testament. Paul explained, Quote, we know that the law is good if a man uses it lawfully. End quote. 1 Timothy 1.8 What are the lawful uses of the law? Proper uses of the law Before Adam fell into sin, obedience to the law would bring to him life and well-being. Since the fall, however, the law became to sinners a way of condemnation and death. The law cannot bring about obedience in the sinner and cannot be used as a way of justification. The ceremonial shadows of the Old Testament, the gospel in figures, gave promise that God himself would graciously accomplish full salvation for his people, justify them from sin, and break the power of rebellion in their lives. God's righteousness is effective in those who have experienced a transition from wrath to grace in their personal lives, so that grateful obedience to God's good law becomes a way of life and well-being. No longer is God's law ignored. No longer is it replaced with the commandments and wisdom of men. No longer is it misused for the purposes of self-righteousness. Within the life of the believer, the law receives its proper due. Indeed, it is established by faith. Romans 3.31 By it we can be blessed. According to scripture, the law has many legitimate functions. We can try to summarize them in the following list. 1. The law declares the character of God and so reveals his glory. The kind of lifestyle and attitudes which the Lord requires of his people tells us, of course, what kind of God he is. If you wish to see the contrast between the pagan deities and the living and true God of the Bible, simply observe the difference between the things which they command. Moloch demanded child sacrifice, while Jehovah commanded the care and nurture of children, to take but one example. 
Psalm 119 extensively applies the attributes of God, perfection, purity, righteousness, truth, to the precepts of God. Throughout the law, God reinforces the authority of his commands by following them with the declaration, I am the Lord. In showing the true and radical demand of the law's requirements, Matthew 5, 21-47, Christ was showing us the perfection of God which is desired in us, verse 48. John Newton wrote, quote, When we use the law as a glass to behold the glory of God, we use it lawfully. His glory is eminently revealed in Christ, but much of it is with a special reference to the law and cannot be otherwise discerned. We see the perfection and excellence of the law in his life. God was glorified by his obedience as a man. What a perfect character did he exhibit, yet it is no other than a transcript of the law, end quote. 2. The law displays the demand of God upon our lives as men. By revealing the character of God, the law quite naturally expresses what is required of men if they are going to imitate their creator. The law's commands show how we are to be like God by propounding the will of God for us. Before delivering the summation of the law in the Decalogue, God spoke to Israel with these words, quote, Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession from among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. End quote. Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Obedience to the law is obedience to the voice of the king, the lord of the covenant, and as such it shows us what it means to be his subjects and servants. For us to pray, thy kingdom come, is likewise to pray, thy will be done on earth. Matthew 6.10. And God's will is communicated by his commandments, telling us what his holiness means on a creaturely level. Leviticus 27 and 8. 3. The law pronounces blessing upon adherence to its demands. God's commandments were laid down for our good. Deuteronomy 10.13. And obedience to them is the pure delight of the righteous man. Psalm 1 verse 1 and 2. Such obedience brings prosperity, Psalm 1, verses 3 and 4, and good success, Joshua 1, 7. The Lord's loving kindness is upon those who keep his precepts, Psalm 103, verses 17 and 18, blessing them in their cultures, Deuteronomy 7, 11, 28, and 30. Indeed, Paul taught that godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come, 1 Timothy 4, 8. Seeking the righteousness of God's kingdom above all will be rewarded by the supply of every need. Matthew 6.33 The law ensures that when men are just and righteous, they enjoy the life and blessing which imitation of God constitutes. Thus the commandment was ordained unto life. Romans 7.10 And the man who does the things of the law enjoys life within their sphere. Galatians 3.12 4. The law provides a definition of sin. By showing us what God is like and what God demands, the law likewise delivers a standard for sin. Sin is lawlessness, 1 John 3, 4. In delineating the righteousness which pleases God, the law simultaneously provides the norm of waywardness in rebellion against God. Where there is no law, there can be no transgression, Romans 4, 15 and 5, 13. By the law, men come to know what sin is, Romans 3, 20 and 7, 7. 5. The law exposes infractions and convicts of sin. The law is more than simply an objective code of right and wrong by which, 
if one is interested, he can judge his performance. The law being spiritual, Romans 7.14, is part of that word of God which is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, so as to pierce deeply into the recesses of man's heart and bring to the light his darkest character. The law judges the thoughts and intents of the heart, Hebrews 4.12, and produces a conviction of our sinfulness, for example, Romans 7, verses 9-13. 6. Even more, the law works to incite rebellion in sinful men. Not only must we recognize that the law cannot enable us to obey its demands, we must also see that the law actually works in the contrary direction, exciting within the rebel further and further expressions of disobedience. Because the mind of the flesh, sinful nature, is unable to be subject to God's law, Romans 8, 7, God's law serves to confirm one's bondage to sin by provoking intensified rebellion. Thus, Paul can see in the law the very power of sin, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty six. To understand this one need only reflect on the sad fact that the best way for an owner of a plate glass window to get it broken is for him to post a sign prohibiting the throwing of rocks at it. The very prohibition incites rebellion in the heart. By means of the commandments, then, man's sinful nature becomes exceedingly sinful, Romans 7.13, working in us all manner of sin, Romans 7.8, causing the trespass to abound, Romans 5.20. 7. Consequently, the law condemns all transgression as deserving God's wrath and curse. The statement of Galatians 3.10 is blunt and terrifying, quote, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them, end quote. Deuteronomy 27.16. James intensifies the threat, saying, quote, Whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point has become guilty of all. End quote. James 2.10. Every infraction of the law brings wrath upon the sinner. All men will be judged for their ungodliness. Jude 6. Judged according to their deeds, whether good or evil. 2 Corinthians 5.10. And if found guilty, cast into the eternal perdition of second death. Revelation 20.12-15. The wages of sin will be death, Romans 6.23. Therefore the law works wrath, Romans 4.15, upon those who are, by their sinful natures, children of wrath, Ephesians 2.3. 8. The law drives us to Christ for salvation. Thus far we have noted the unmitigated, absolute, unchanging demand of the law, which reflects the holiness of God and thus sets out the evil of man by glaring contrast. Those who would have hoped in their own righteousness for acceptance before God are shown the futility of this hope by looking at the high standard of the law. The law speaks, and this shuts every mouth by bringing all the world under God's judgment. Romans 3.19 Sinners apart from Christ have no hope in this world. Ephesians 2.12 The sinner's only recourse must be to the free mercy of God's promise. Enlightened as to his guilt, he cries out with Paul, Wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Romans 7.24 God's gracious answer is Jesus Christ. Romans 3.25 Who manifests the righteousness of God apart from our obedience to the law. Verse 21 And who justifies us by the free gift of faith. Romans 3.22-26 5.18-21 And 6.23 in this way, the law serves an important function in bringing men to salvation. It demonstrates their need and leaves them no honest option but God's offer of salvation. Quote, Before faith came, we were kept in ward 
but under the law, shut up unto the faith, which should afterwards be revealed, so that the laws become our tutor to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. End quote. Galatians 3:23 and 24. This passage is customarily cited for the wording which suggests that the law drives us along to Christ. 9. The law guides the sanctification of the believer. Since the law sets down the pattern of God's holiness for our lives, since the law was our obligation from the beginning, and since it is precisely the violation of the law which brought about the death of Jesus Christ for sinners, it only stands to reason that those delivered from sin's guilt and bondage should now desire to follow the previously spurned law. Those who have seen the glory of God in his law and have thereby been convicted of their own sin, being driven to Christ for salvation, should strive to bring their thoughts, words, and deeds into conformity to the glorious standard of the law. God says, You shall keep my statutes and practice them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Leviticus 28. Christ gives his spirit to believers in order that the ordinance of the law might be fulfilled. Romans 8.4. The law offers guidance and discernment to the believer. Psalm 119:24, verse 26, verse 105, Proverbs 6:23, so that he can walk in the light of God's moral perfection rather than in darkness. 1 John 1:5 1, through 7, 1 John 2:3 through 6, 1 John 3:4 through 10, and 5:2 through 3. Christians ought not to sin, but rather to evidence love toward God and neighbor. The first epistle of John tells us that sin is a violation of the law, and that love is seen in keeping God's commandments. Accordingly, Christians are properly guided in their lives by the law of God. John Newton wrote, quote, Another lawful use of the law is to consult it as a rule and pattern by which to regulate our spirit and conversation. The grace of God received by faith will dispose us to obedience in general, but through remaining darkness and ignorance, we are much at a loss as to particulars. We are therefore sent to the law that we may learn how to walk worthy of God who has called us to his kingdom and glory, and every precept has its proper place and use. End quote. Such an outlook led men like Newton to find another use of the law closely associated with its function of guiding sanctification. They often spoke of the law serving as a test whereby to judge of the exercise of grace. Such a contempt, although unpopular in our day of easy believism, was very much on the mind of the Apostle John, who wrote, Hereby we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. 1 John 2.3 Obedience to the commandments was for John also a mark that one loved God and loved God's children. 1 John 5.2-3 It thus appears appropriate that believers should use the law of God as a benchmark by which to gauge and evaluate their growth by God's grace and holiness of character. Because Bolton viewed the law as a direction of life, a rule of walking to believers, he went on to find that God's law functioned as a glass mirror to reveal the imperfections in our performance of duties, as a reprover and corrector for sin, even to the saints, and as a spur to quicken us to duties. 10. The law also serves to restrain the evil of the unregenerate. Although only believers will appreciate aright the glory of God's character revealed in the law, be convicted of their sinful pollution by comparison, and seek to be conformed to the righteous standard of the law, the law also serves a function in the life and experience of the unbeliever. Even if the unbeliever is not duly driven by the condemning finger of the law to the arms of a faithful Savior, the law should be utilized within a civil society to restrain the outward evil of ungodly men. Indeed, in the very passage where Paul tells us that the law is good when used lawfully, 
The precise lawful use of the law which he has in mind is its restraining function upon rebellious men. Quote, Knowing this, that the law was not enacted for a righteous man, but for the lawless and unruly, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for homosexuals or men-stealers, for liars, for false swearers, etc. 1 Timothy 1, verses 9-10. This may not be a sanctifying effect in the unbeliever's life, but it is nevertheless a preservative function within society which is honored by God. It was intended as one of the proper functions of the law when God revealed it, both through the created realm and through the medium of written legislation. Chapter 21 To Traditional Three Uses of the Law Quote, When the known ordinances of God's law are spurned by a culture, it experiences the wrath of God revealed against it in the progressive breakdown of social order and moral decency. End quote. My preceding survey has aimed to delineate many facets of legitimate function of the law as discussed in Scripture. However, traditional Reformed thought has tended to summarize all of these various functions under the heading of three main uses of the law. The Reformers recognized quite clearly that the law had not been abolished in the New Testament age, and yet they were keenly aware of the abuses of the law to which the medieval Roman Catholic Church was prone. Therefore, Against antinomians, they argued for the law's validity, and in order to prevent falling into error in the use of the law, they set down the law's proper functions. The first use of God's law, they believed, is the political use of the law. They believed that the enforcement of God's law by the civil magistrate is necessary for the proper and legitimate restraining of ungodly behavior by ungodly men. The second use of the law, which they identified was called the pedagogic use of the law, by providing conviction of sin and creating a sense of spiritual need in the sinner, the law was a tutor which brought him to Christ. In his well-known commentary on the book of Galatians, Luther wrote, quote, The right use and end, therefore, of the law is to accuse and condemn as guilty such as live in security, that they may see themselves to be in danger of sin, wrath, and death eternal. The law with this office helpeth by occasion to justification, in that it driveth the man to the promise of grace. At Galatians chapter 2, verse 17, and chapter 3, verse 19, in this commentary on Galatians. Certainly, no evangelical believer can gainsay that the law properly serves such an end. The third use of the law identified by the Reformers was its didactic use, whereby the law supplies a rule for life to believers. Calvin wrote, quote, The law is the best instrument for enabling believers daily to learn what the will of God is which they are to follow, end quote. Although some modern Lutherans have wished to distance themselves from this use of the law, there can be no doubt but that it is endorsed by Luther in the formula of concord. Luther said that apart from appealing to the law for justification, quote, we cannot sufficiently praise and magnify those works which are commanded of God, end quote, in his commentary at Galatians chapter 3, verse 22. To remove the law from the believer, thought Luther, Quote, is a thing impossible and against God, end quote. Accordingly, Luther's small catechism begins with an exposition of the Decalogue. The formula of Concord declared, quote, We believe, teach, and confess that the preaching of the law should be urged, also upon those who truly believe in Christ, are truly converted to God, and regenerated are, and are justified by faith, end quote. Article 6.2 
Although the Calvinist branch of the Reformation stresses the law as a good gift of God's grace, and the Lutheran branch stresses it as a constraint, they both agree that the law is to be used to form the life of the regenerate believer. The Controversial First Use Traditionally, Reformed thought has summarized the proper use of the law into three specific functions. It drives the convicted sinner to Christ, the second use, and provides a pattern of sanctification for the regenerated believer, the third use. Some debate has surfaced in the past over the third or didactic use of the law, but the Reformed faith has still persisted in the biblical affirmation that the law retains its binding validity for the conduct of believers. More recently, disagreement has arisen with the respect to what the Reformers called the first use of the law, which they took to be its political use in restraining the ungodly behavior of the unregenerate within society. The Reformers were sure enough of this proper function for God's law that they could call it the first and most obvious use for it. In fact, the very passage where Paul suggests that there are both lawful and unlawful uses for the law of God, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, goes on immediately to illustrate a lawful use of the law as that of curbing the outward civil behavior of unruly men, in verses 9 and 10. The law provides an external standard of justice which can be applied within the civil sphere, as is evident from Paul's mentioning of transgressions that can particularly be given cognizance by human law. The law was enacted or laid down, says Paul, for the unruly, such as murderers, kidnappers, homosexuals, perjurers, and the like. The law, by its very nature, aims to restrain the misconduct of lawless men. In the publisher's introduction to the Banner of Truth reprint of Samuel Bolton's marvelous work, The True Bounds of Christian Freedom, the civil importance of God's law is pinpointed nicely. Quote, Grievous and alarming is the present-day de deterioration in the moral condition of society. For this decay, the church is partly blameworthy because, as the preserving salt of the community, she has largely lost her savor. Modern theology has defected. It has cut itself adrift from the ancient landmarks, and present-day society reaps the evil thing and bitter, which is the inevitable consequence. The present prevailing theology has not been able to elevate society and halt its moral decline, and unquestionably, one explanation of this is its misunderstanding of the place of the law and its usefulness in the service of the covenant of grace." End quote. When men fail to see that God's law is meant to operate as external discipline within society, when they doubt and oppose the political use of the law, their societies inevitably suffer the accursed consequences. Carl F. H. Henry puts the matter this way, quote, Even where there is no saving faith, the law serves to restrain sin and to preserve the order of creation by proclaiming the will of God. By its judgments and its threats of condemnation and punishment, the written law, along with the law of conscience, hinders sin among the unregenerate. It has the role of a magistrate who is a terror to evildoers. It fulfills a political function, therefore, by its constraining influence in the unregenerate world. End quote. Biblical Law and Civil Government This political function of the law is undeniable in the Old Testament, where God delivered statutes pertaining to civil matters for his people. These stipulations were integral to the law and order of the Old Testament society, and if Paul's New Testament declaration in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8-10 through 10 is to be heeded, these stipulations of God's law are still valuable in modern political ethics. Quote, We cannot dismiss these glimpses of the means of law and order in the Old Testament without remembering that this God-given tradition is emphasized and not abrogated by the Christian gospel. 
Though under grace we are under the law of God and are still accountable to him and reasonable for our fellow men that justice and peace prevail, end quote. D.J. Wiseman, Law and Order in the Old Testament Times. The law of God continues to have an important political function within the New Testament order, as Donald Guthrie recognizes in saying, In the New Testament, a standard of justice is assumed, and there is a clear differentiation between what is right and what is wrong. There are echoes of the Old Testament view of social justice. The approach to law in general in the New Testament is intricately bound up with the Mosaic Law, which makes extensive provision for social justice. The importance of this evidence of the sanctity of the law is that it provides a sound basis for social action. For a stable society, law is indispensable. End quote. An ironic situation has arisen in our day. Evangelical Christians who might be considered to lean toward a more liberal position in politics, and evangelical Christians who might be thought to favor a more conservative position in politics, have at least this one unwitting area of significant agreement. They both wish to make a principled and authoritative use of the Old Testament law for social justice. Recent publications which have promoted an active involvement by the believer in relieving the needs of impoverished people around the world have made noteworthy appeal to the law of Jubilee, while many books and articles written to protest the tolerance of homosexuality and or abortion in our day have made clear and unapologetic reference to the Old Testament prohibitions against them. The laws recognized as having a continued political significance by present-day believers, even when they do not systematically work out a theological foundation for the appeals which are made to the law's authority in contemporary society, and even when they might elsewhere unwittingly contradict that assumed foundation. That foundation is the continuing validity of God's law, even in its social or political relevance. Strangely enough, it is often those who are heirs to the Reformation tradition of maintaining the political use of that law that raise objection to that notion today. In resisting the political use of God's law, in detracting from its political relevance, and in encouraging either indifference to questions of social justice or else alternative standards for it, such men are not aligned with their Reformation forefathers. Luther and Calvin were fully in agreement that God's law was an instrument of civil government, functioning to restrain crime and to promote thereby civil order. Luther taught that, quote, The first use of the law is to bridle the wicked. This civil restraint is very necessary and appointed of God, as well as for public peace, as for the preservation of all things, but especially lest the cause of the gospel should be hindered by the tumult and seditions of the wicked, outrageous, and proud men, end quote. Commentary at Galatians chapter 3 verse 19. Calvin concurs, quote, The first use of the law is, by means of its fearful denunciations and the consequent dread of punishment, to curb those who, unless forced, have no regard for rectitude and justice. Such a persons are curbed, not because their mind is inwardly moved and affected, but because, as if a bridle were laid upon them, they refrain their hands from external acts and internally check the depravity which would otherwise petulantly burst forth. End quote. Calvin's Institutes, Book 2, Chapter 7, Verse 10. This continued to be the view of Reformed thinkers throughout the centuries. At the time of the Westminster Assembly, Samuel Bolton wrote, quote, First of all, then, my work is to show the chief and principal ends for which the law was promulgated or given. There are two main ends to be observed. One was political and the other theological or divine. The political use is hinted at by the Apostle in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. 
that is, it were made for them in such fashion that, if it were not their rule, it should be their punishment, such as the political use of the law, end quote. Conclusion. The political use of the law is admittedly negative and merely deterrent in character. It does nothing to regenerate the sinner or make him right with God. It does not touch his heart or bring him any closer to the Savior. Nevertheless, this function of the law is crucial for man's society. When the known ordinances of God's law are spurned by a culture, it experiences the wrath of God revealed against it in the progressive breakdown of social order and moral decency. Romans 1. Because this important political use of the law of God is unpopular in many circles today, and because many people who are educated in the secular environment of our society carry confused conceptions of what this political function entails, the next few chapters will focus on the biblical doctrine of civil government and the biblical laws placed therein. We will see that, quote, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people, end quote. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34 in which case we dare not dismiss the political relevance and use of the biblically revealed law of God. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.